Good morning. It's great, isn't it, to be together. It's not the most beautiful of mornings, but it's a morning when we are meeting in the name of Jesus Christ to offer our worship to God and to listen carefully to see what God might have to say to us. Our opening words come from the letter of Paul to the church at Galatia. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our prayers of approach this morning are taken pretty much verbatim from the Baptist Union of Great Britain worship resource gathering for worship and are part of the prayers they suggest for possible use in the context of a marriage service. So let us pray together. God of love, we praise you. You made the world in love giving us freedom. In Christ, you lived by love, accepting all its hurt and sharing all its healing. By your spirit, you are present in love, everywhere and always, here and now. As we respond to your love, accept the worship and commitment we each bring. Let the love of Christ be present in everything said and done today. Loving God, who understands us better than we understand ourselves, you know us through and through and love us completely. We entrust to you our past hurts and ask for your healing. We come in trembling trust with tender hopes, and ask for your help. Show us that your tender mercy stretches to the heavens, your grace reaches to the depths of the sea, and your love enfolds us through Christ our Lord. Amen. It seemed right this morning just to do a very short introduction to the series of services that we're going to be having over the next few weeks. Sometimes you have what you think is a great idea and then you think, "Mm, was it such a great idea after all? But this is what I honestly believe that God is leading us to look at. And I want to tell you how I've come at it partly because when I was a ministerial student a fair while ago now, I did some research about single people's experience of church, partly through literature and partly through some empirical surveys. And one of the questions I asked people was, have you ever heard a sermon or part of a sermon on singleness? I asked about 50 people in different churches and not one of them had ever heard a sermon on singleness. In fact, when I dug a little bit further, very few had ever heard a sermon about marriage or about family life or indeed any other aspect of human relationships. 
Some of them had done Bible studies. Some of them had read books aimed at teenagers, which were basically how to avoid falling into bed with somebody. But few of them had ever thought about things like a Christian marriage or a Christian work ethic. Well, I've been preaching for about 15 years, and I have never once preached on any of those things either. And I got the impression that it was time I thought quite seriously and deeply about some of this and shared with you what I honestly believe God has been saying to me. So today we're beginning with the concept of Christian marriage, which is probably the most thorny of the four I've picked, but there we go. In a few minutes we're going to be hearing, a few moments even, we're going to hear some Bible passages read from us. And these are those I most often hear used to defend specific views about marriage. And I think they will be familiar to most, if not all of you. As you hear them, you will react in some way. That's inevitable. We always react when we hear something read. But I want you to try, as we move on to the reflection part that just follows those readings, to use the three questions that are printed on the top of the sheet that was on your chair. What is my reaction to this reading? And that will be different for different people. Why is that my reaction? Why do I feel that way? And how does the way I understand that reading, however that is, affect somebody else who might hear it differently? I might find it disturbing and you might not. You might find it offensive and I might find it affirming. All these kind of things. So just to hold in mind, as we hear those readings, how do they affect us? And how might our understanding affect other people? So Willie is going to come and bring us our Bible readings now. The first reading is uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 30, on page 4 of the Pew Bible. Then God said, And now we will make human beings. They will be like us and resemble us. They will have power over the fish, the birds, and all animals, domestic and wild, large and small. So God created human beings, making them to be like himself. He created them, male and female, blessed them, and said, Have many children, so that your descendants will live all over the earth and bring it under their control. I am putting you in charge of all the fish, the birds, and all the wild animals. I've provided all kinds of grain and all kinds of fruit for you to eat. But for all the wild animals and for all the birds, I've provided grass and leafy plants for food. And it was done. We turn to the second, the next reading, which is chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to live alone. I will make a suitable companion to help him. So he took some soil from the ground and formed all the animals and all the birds. Then he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And that is how they all got their names. So the man tamed all the birds and all the animals, 
but not one of them was a suitable companion to help him. Then the Lord God made the man fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping he took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the flesh. He formed a woman out of the rib and brought her to him. Then the man said, At last here is one of my own kind, bone taken from my bone and flesh from my flesh. Woman is her name because she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one. And the final reading is uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33, on page 245. Uh, Submit yourselves to one another because of your reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband has authority over his wife, just as Christ has authority over the church. And Christ is himself the saviour of the church, his body. And so wives must submit completely to their husbands, just as the church submits itself to Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. He did this to dedicate the church to God by his word, after making it clean by washing it in water, in order to present the church to himself in all its beauty, pure and faultless, without spot or wrinkle or any imperfection. Men ought to love their wives just as they love their own bodies. A man who loves his wife loves himself. People never hate their own bodies, Instead, they feed them and take care of them, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. As the scripture says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and the two will become one. There is a deep secret truth revealed in the scripture, which I understand as applying to Christ and the church, but it also applies to you. Every husband must love his wife as himself, and every wife must respect her husband. Here endeth the lesson. If you're looking for exposition of any of those passages, I'm afraid you're not going to get it. This is not an expository sermon. It's more of an exploration to help us to answer questions such as, is there such a thing as a Christian marriage? And if there is, what does it look like? Very often in Christian circles, I hear people assert that marriage is God's ideal. And the verses we heard from Genesis are used to support that assertion. Certainly that fits what a lot of us experience in churches. But is it correct? What do we actually find if we study scripture closely And specifically as Christians, what does the New Testament have to teach us about marriage? To our surprise, we may find what may be at best described as an ambivalence towards marriage. It is something that exists only on earth in the present age. And if we go with Paul's teaching, the teaching of the Apostle Paul... It's essentially a concession to those who cannot cope with celibacy. So rather than God's ideal, 
it could be argued that marriage is God's second best, at least the Apostle Paul. Certainly we can tie ourselves into theological knots if we assert marriage as God's ideal and then accept that Jesus was single. That would make Jesus' status less than ideal and therefore imperfect. But Christ was perfect. You can see that pursuing games like that isn't helpful. But perhaps it helps us to stop and think a little more deeply just what marriage is and is not and what difference faith might make. What the Bible shows us is that marriage is a gift from God, but is not the only, nor yet the ideal condition for all people. So what about marriage in history? Living as we do in Scotland in the 21st century, we take it for granted that marriages are voluntary unions between consenting couples founded on romantic love. The idea that for most of history, neither voluntarism nor love were factors in determining marriage seems ridiculous. But that's how it was, and until very recently, the last vestiges of those old marriage patterns could be seen quite clearly in the restrictions placed on members of the royal family. The idea that Prince William could marry Kate Middleton would have been abhorrent even a generation ago. Well, it might not have been abhorrent, but it would have not been permitted even a generation ago. Historically, marriages were essentially economic contracts in which land or services were offered in exchange for the reproductive capacity of those involved. It was as economic and brutal as that. As a result, young children were often betrothed to one another without ever meeting. A marriage followed once they were old enough to reproduce. So, for example, in a wealthy family, partners would be chosen based on wealth. Whereas in a peasant family, practical skills such as farming or blacksmithing would be considered. Wives were essentially chattels, and divorce was a prerogative of men who were dissatisfied with them. The truth is that for most of history, most people in Britain would never have entered a legal marriage contract with any form of registration. They would simply have lived together in partnerships arranged by their families, with no say in who or when or why. Certainly in Great Britain until the 16th century, which is actually relatively recent, the legality of marriage consisted simply in two people declaring themselves to be married. And in fact, if you look at any of the rights used today, it's those who are marrying who make the statement of marriage. The idea of marriage as a holy estate, as the church quite often expresses it, is actually a relatively late understanding. Hard though it is to believe, the idea of Christian marriage emerged relatively late on. For the first four centuries of Christianity, the ideal that people aspired to was celibacy. And marriage was just a necessary means of producing a new generation of Christians. 
beyond the limits of proselytization. And that is actually where the misconception, pardon the pun, that marriage is about reproduction comes. But no matter how hard you search the scriptures, Old or New Testament, no matter how much church history you read, before around about the 12th century, you will find no reference whatsoever to marriages taking place within the context of Christian worship. What we actually see is that each church took on the local contextual ways of doing marriage. Any rites, any rituals that were local were taken up, and if there weren't any, then nothing happened. Basically, marriage was a secular state thing. Now, if we did study church history, what we would find is that by the medieval period in Britain and in Western Europe, there were the beginnings of a connection with the church. It's generally thought that probably how it began was the bishop on his tours would go to congratulate people who were newly married and to pray with them. And as time went on, people began to come close to the church. They would stand at the gate and they would be prayed for by the priest. And slowly but surely, marriages were brought into the church. But marriage in church is a human innovation. And clearly it's valuable, but there is no scriptural mandate for that. And in fact... Surprisingly, most marriages that are done within Christian traditions are not required by the churches. Baptist churches accept state, secular marriages. And strictly, a marriage that takes place in a, marriage, in a Baptist church is a secular civil ceremony, not a religious ceremony under UK law. So we have a conundrum here, don't we? The church has a high view of marriage, and we feel there ought to be something different about Christian marriage. But we have little, if any, guidance from the Bible. While most nationalities confine legal marriage to one person, two people married to one other person, at least at a time, the biblical record is full of accounts of polygamy, especially amongst those we hold in high esteem, such as David or Solomon. Go and count how many they had. At the same time, whilst for most people a committed relationship is something they desire or aspire to, we have the example of Jesus and the claim of Paul that celibacy may be preferable. So what do we do? Well, firstly, we need to face the hard fact that a marriage between two professed Christians celebrated in the context of Christian worship, does not make a marriage Christian. There are in every church, and there will be in this church, marriages that fail on pretty much any measure of what we might judge Christian. Physical or mental cruelty of one partner towards the other. Rape and sexual abuse. Neglect violence. The list is long and shocking and these may exist in marriages that may outwardly on a Sunday 
appear to be very ordered and very living. None of us knows what goes on behind closed doors. But there are ministers and ministers' partners who experience violence and abuse and neglect. And there are members of congregations likewise. So then it's not the location and it's not the wording of the ceremony that makes a marriage Christian in character. It has to be something about its attitudes and values that are expressed within it. We can't look to the Bible for absolute rules. We have to seek guiding principles because the societal norms of 21st century Scotland are totally different from 1st century Palestine or ancient Israel. The Old Testament gives us both polygamy and concubinage as permissible. We see that in the stories of Esther, David, and Solomon. But by the time Jesus lived, monogamy was the norm. Or perhaps we should say serial monogamy, because the Gospels show us quite clearly that divorce was widespread and actually rather easy. Households were large and complex. They were more like small businesses than the nuclear families that we know today. Into this milieu, in which women were merely chattels with few, if any, rights, and despite what the scriptures said, sorry, in this milieu, women were chattels with few rights, despite what the scriptures said. The early church, inspired by Paul and by Jesus, offered something radically different. When we hear those words from the letter to the church at Ephesus, they probably make us feel uncomfortable. Well, they make me feel uncomfortable anyway. But for their time, and for a first century context, they were radical. Dare I even use the word liberal? Rather than assuming power and control, marriage is a relationship demanding sacrifice and commitment. Comparing marriage to the relationship between Christ and the church is mind-blowing. That a human relationship could somehow hint at the kingdom of heaven, in which, perversely, according to Jesus, there would be no marriage. You see, if we devote our attention to gendered roles within marriage, we miss the heart of what ought to be distinctive about marriage between Christians. And we miss the mystery that is so beautifully expressed in the words from the letters to the church in Galatia with which we began our worship. That in Christ, earthly categories that divide and classify become meaningless and are replaced by our unity and equality within Christ. What makes marriage a glimpse of eternity has got nothing to do with beautiful words or gold rings. What makes it valid has nothing to do with its legal status, though clearly that has a practical purpose. What mattered is is something about the quality of relationship that it expresses. And if the values expressed in the New Testament letters were radical and counterculture in their day, what might be equally astounding godly values in our day? Firstly, Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. If any of you follow any kind of celebrity news, 
You will know that prenuptial agreements on how wealth and property are to be divided in the event of divorce are widespread. To me, that reflects a very flawed understanding of what marriage is about, confusing a legal contract with what ought to be a covenanted undertaking. The concept of the troth relationship is one that is seen throughout the scriptural record. It's seen in the close friendship of David and Jonathan. It's seen in the bond between the widows, Ruth and Naomi. In each case, one person pledged loyalty to the other. And in each case, God was invoked as a party to that agreement to hold them accountable for the promises they'd made. Now, the marriage covenant goes further than that of friendship or kinship, but it is a little bit like it. A marriage understood in a Christian way is a covenant relationship and can therefore only exist where it is undertaken voluntarily. A covenant of necessity requires mutuality and reciprocity. Each partner is accountable to and dependent on the other. The distinctively Christian element is a deliberate and conscious invocation of God. In some rites, a verse from the Gospels is used as an attempt to express this. Those whom God has joined, let no one separate. Now, I don't think that means that God somehow said, you will marry you. What I think it does is make those who are present as witnesses accept a responsibility to help the couple to fulfill that covenant. It's interesting, when I was looking through the um, BUGB worship book, they actually include congregational promises to support a couple within their marriage rite. So firstly, it's a covenant. But what form does that covenant take and what does it mean? If we take the most widely used form of words in UK marriages, which are not a legal requirement in any part of the UK, each person promises to remain faithful to the other one no matter how life turns out, for worse or for better, if they have long and healthy lives, or if one or both has acute, chronic or life-limiting health issues if they're financially secure and materially well-off, or if they experience extreme poverty and lose everything they own. This is a covenant of sacrifice rather than of self-interest. The idea that the two become one is much more than a euphemism for sexual union. It is about the sacrificial intertwining of two lives. No longer can, or at least no longer should, one partner say, I've been offered a great job and we're moving to the far side of the world. No longer can, or should, one person say to the other one, you're just too sick, I can't cope with this anymore, I'm off. Being married means letting go of I and me and accepting we and us. That sounds easy, but it isn't. The supreme sacrifice of Christ, of course, is death. And that is the ideal that the writer of the letter to the church at Ephesus proposes for marriage. 
The question is, would you be willing to die for your partner? Would you give up everything that matters to you for them? And would they for you? It seems to me that the Apostle Paul has rather a jaded view of marriage, especially in his words in the letter to the church at Corinth, where he says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. But at the same time, he has a very high view of love. With the emergence of Bible translations in contemporary English, the great hymn to Agape, traditionally translated as charity in 1 Corinthians 13, has become a favourite for weddings. And it's easy to see why. The eloquent poetry is a delight to the ear. And the qualities of love are absolutely those which ought to characterise a marriage. Forgiveness, long-suffering, patience, kindness. There is no doubt at all that we live in a highly sexualised culture And one consequence of that is that many young Christians enter marriage simply as a means to legitimate sexual expression, which they understand to be otherwise prohibited. A relationship built solely on passion will not stand the test of time, since it hasn't got any place for frail or failing bodies or minds. It has no concept of patience or of letting go of hurts. Not one of us is able to love perfectly. And yet, love in all its fullness may best be seen in the covenant relationship between two people. The last thing I want to say, very briefly, takes us right back to the Genesis stories and away from the common misunderstanding of the purpose of marriage. The link between marriage and sex and the link between sex and procreation has led to a very unhelpful assumption that the primary purpose of marriage is procreative. But if we read what Genesis actually says, the heart of marriage is to end aloneness, to create a relationship in which people are able to be truly open and honest be fully accepted and fully known. Throughout the biblical record and throughout history, childlessness in marriage has been equated with failure or worse because the central concept that marriage is about the end of aloneness has been lost. Where marriage leads to the birth and nurture of children, that is fantastic and to be celebrated. But that's not the be-all and end-all of marriage. That's not its primary, scripturally understood purpose. So, to sum up, there is no biblical mandate for a specifically Christian marriage. And throughout history, marriages had very little to do with faith, and everything to do with societal norms. But if we do search the Bible, we find pointers towards a different understanding of marriage in the 21st century, an understanding that is different from those that are materialistic. Values of covenant, 
values of self-sacrifice, values of love and partnership, mutuality and reciprocity. The challenge for each and every one of us, whether we are married or not, whether we have been married, whether we aspire to be married or not, is to incorporate such values into each and every one of our human relationships. Amen. In the course of our prayers for others this morning, I invite you to join in the sung response that you'll find on your order of service. It's a a tasty response that we sung before, but before we begin our prayers, I'm going to ask the choir just to sing it through once to remind you of the tune. Let us pray. Creator God, we praise you that you have made us in your image, that you have made us beings with the capacity to love and to be loved, so that we only find our true selves in relationship with others. We pray this morning for all who are in committed, loving relationships. We know that it is hard to love as you love. Loving the other better than we love ourselves. Putting the other first. And we often fail. Help us to learn that real love is not a once-and-for-all promise, but a daily, minute-by-minute, moment-by-moment resolve to love with your kind of love. And that even though we fail, we go on trying, because we believe that where there is real love, You, Lord, are there. Loving God, we pray for those whose life partner has recently died. 
and in the silence we name before you now those known to us personally who have recently lost their life's companion. We pray that you will help them to discover how to live without their partner. We realise that after so many years of growing together, those that are left behind can feel literally disabled, diminished, unsure of who they are without the other. Help each one as they adjust to this new kind of living and give them the assurance that love is stronger than death because we believe that where there is real love you Lord are there Passionate God, we pray for those whose relationship has broken down, who are dealing with the wrenching sadness of the end of a relationship. Be close to them in their pain or anger or confusion or guilt. Grant that as painful memories grow dimmer and wounds begin to heal, they may be able to forgive and move on, acknowledging all that has been good as well as all that has been painful in the relationship. Because we believe that where there is real love, you, Lord, are there. We pray for the church, and for this church in particular. For you love your church as a groom loves his bride. Help us to show you that we love you in the only way we can, by loving one another. Make us patient with one another, putting each other's interests before our own. And help us to see your image deep within each of our friends around us here in Hillhead. Because we believe 
that where there is real love, you, Lord, are there. Jesus' name. Amen. Some words from the book of Revelation. I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks, and honour and power and strength be to our God, forever and ever.